0: Thank you, and welcome, uh, Keith Whittington. I'm the acting director of the James Madison Program, American Ideals and Institutions. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the second of this year's Charles E. Test MD, Distinguished Visiting Scholars uh, seminars. Uh, the first of the seminar series uh, met last week um, at this same time uh, to talk about the first part of the theme of this uh, lecture's. Uh, which are on religious liberty. Um, last week, we talked about the political aspect of it. Um, this week, uh, focusing on the philosophical question, in two weeks' time, uh, we'll meet again to talk in the final uh, meeting of the of the seminar to talk about the theological um, aspect of it. And we have um, a, a truly excellent speaker uh, to help us work through um, these problems uh, this month, uh, and that's David Novak, who is the J. Richard and Dorothy Schiff Chair of Jewish Studies as professor of the study of religion and professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, where he's been uh, since 1997. Um, he is also a member of the University College and the Joint Center uh, for Bioethics. Um, he's been the director of the Jewish Studies program um, th- uh, there, he's, uh, re- and he ultimately received his PhD uh, in philosophy from uh, Georgetown uh, University. Uh, several years ago, so he comes uh, to us with uh, a lot of experience from thinking about these uh, questions from a a lot of different angles, Um, and I hope you will uh, welcome uh, welcome him uh, here today. It's good to be back here
1: for this uh, second lecture of the series. Um, Once again, I think that to help uh, follow the lecture, I will uh, announce each of the uh, sections uh, of the lecture, which gives you a chance to kind of uh, shift gears for uh, the next topic. Uh, Section one is entitled Morality and Religion. Uh, In the previous lecture on religious liberty and politics, we saw how the exercise of the right to religious liberty becomes publicly controversial when religious communities choose to make moral claims on the secular body politic. As for the cultic claims of these same communities, however, claims we would call strictly religious, such as claims to practice singular forms of worship, these claims are rarely controversial in a secular society. Instead, the strictly religious controversies involving these cultic matters are almost always confined to the cultural space of the religious community. These claims can only be made on their own members, Any faithful Jew, Christian, or Muslim can readily attest to the frequency of interreligious controversies over these internal claims, especially in an age when traditions have had to be defended more frequently by their own adherents, even in their own communities. And that is why secular courts are loath to adjudicate interreligious disputes. Only when certain civil aspects of these disputes are so pronounced that the line between the sacred and the profane is elided, would a secular judge be civilly irresponsible to recuse himself or herself from such a case involving this kind of dispute? Nevertheless, as we saw in the last lecture, secular courts are already intruding in the right of religious communities to make moral claims on their own members. Now, religious communities have a much bigger problem in publicly advocating what they take to be universal norms. That is not only their political problem, even more so it is their philosophical problem. Thus, religious people must be prepared to answer this question. How does one advocate a public moral position identifiable with one's religious tradition in a society that does not look to any religious tradition for the justification of public morality? Let me repeat that question because it's the leitmotif of this paper how does one advocate a public moral position identifiable with one's religious tradition in a society that does not look to any religious tradition for the justification of public morality? Surely the political disestablishment of religion means that civil society may no longer look to any religious community for the authorization or justification of any public policy, let alone for any specific legal warrant. Now, how one justifies a public stance that is consistent with one's theology without invoking that theology as its authorizing source is a philosophical question. It requires a philosophical answer. Unfortunately, when it comes to raising this question, though, let alone answering it cogently, religious communities have not been too articulate, let alone persuasive. And I suspect that their political ineptitude is largely due to their lack of philosophical clarity on this and other claims of religious liberty they make in public. So let me be so bold in this lecture to help religious communities, or to try to help religious communities, make at least a more plausible, if not more compelling, philosophical case for their public moral claims. I do this, of course, with a vested interest in the matter, myself being an active member of one such religious community in our society, a community that could and should be more vociferous in its advocacy of certain public norms, norms that are not simply for the sake of its own particular political interests. The philosophical problem of religious advocacy in a democracy is based on the following question. Must religious people derive their public morality from their theology? Or does morality need a religious justification in order to be valid? If the answer is yes, then while the personal motives for what religious people advocate can be based on theology— Or anything else for that matter, they cannot expect their fellow citizens to accept moral positions based on these same personal motives. More publicly acceptable reasons are required if there is to even be the possibility of rational assent from persons whose theologies are different, and especially from those who have no theology at all. That is because theologies as we know them conceptualize historical revelations, and in the deepest sense, we citizens of a multicultural democracy do not share a common history, which is a heilsgeschichte, a sacred history. We do not share a history that extends from revelation to redemption, a history that gives us our true place in the order of the universe. That is why, as citizens of a multicultural democracy, we are not a chosen people, nor should we act if we were one there. In theological perspective, a certain community believes that God has spoken to them, They in turn have accepted that revelation as the foundation of their communal life, a revelation whose occurrence and whose content is then transmitted, traditio, to each succeeding generation. The interpretation of the historical narrative of revelation and the ongoing interpretation of its normative content is the task of theology. As for tradition's normative content, theology is also needed to apply that content to new situations and even to considerably reformulate that content because of new situations. Narrative theology deals with the content of revelation. Normative theology deals with, excuse me, narrative theology deals with the context of revelation. Normative theology deals with the content of revelation. As such, theology speaks the language of historical authority, an authority that cannot claim prima facie rationality so as to make it compelling to the rest of the world that has not already included itself in a singular historical narrative and accepted its norms. I say singular rather than particular, since no faith community regards itself to be part of a larger whole called religion, a whole that can be accessed by some sort of induction without any prior faith commitment on the part of the thinker performing this induction. Faith, which connects adherence to their own religious traditions, cannot be taken as either a self-evident premise or a necessary conclusion from self-evident premises. Faith is not a form of philosophical reasoning. Philosophy can prepare one for faith, even deepen it, but a philosophy cannot automatically engender faith. Faith is not so much a leap from the rational into the super-rational as it is one's acceptance of a communal narrative by including oneself within the narrating community together with the confidence that its story is basically true, even if not verifiable by external criteria. There is no way of ascertaining the truth religions religions teach without one believing, that is accepting with certainty, the testimony of the persons who have testified to this truth by their transmission of that truth. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, Isaiah 43.10. Faith is the way one accepts what the tradition has to say, how it bespeaks the covenantal relationship with God given to the members of the faith community by revelation and its historical transmission. One's keeping the commandments, which is called mitzvot, in his or her active expression of one's practical fidelity to God, who is the object of faith. Faith, in Hebrew, emunah, is the objective confirmation of revealed truth, that in Hebrew, about what God does in relation to us and with us. Trust, bitachon in Hebrew, is the subjective confirmation of the one, who has been who has revealed his word to the faith community in general, and now to this believer in particular. But neither faith nor trust is possible unless the faithful, trusting believer is already within the communal narrative in order to live according to its law. Thus, when Ruth converts to Judaism under the guidance of her mother-in-law, Naomi, she first states, quote, your people are my people, and only then can she say, your God is my God thereafter. It is not that Ruth is accepting a merely tribal deity. Rather, she is accepting the universal God, creator of heaven and earth and the creator of all humankind. Yet Ruth's acceptance of that God is not universalizable. Rather, she is covenanted with God as God is uniquely covenanted with Israel at a point within their history. That is why Boaz, her husband-to-be, blesses her in the name of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for shelter, Ruth 2.12. The actual universal acceptance of the universal God, though, will have to wait for the messianic future, the culmination of all earthly history, when, as the prophet says, quote, on that day the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord alone and his name alone, Zechariah 14.9. That is what separates theology and philosophy. Theology is about history. Philosophy is about nature. Theology is concerned with the truth of singular events in the world, Philosophy is concerned with the truth of regular processes of the world. Part two, natural theology and natural law. Two questions now confront us. One, can one speak of God now in a way that could garner universal consent, especially universal moral consent? Can one speak of God in a morally plausible way, even when it is unlikely one will actually convince nonbelievers to either worship or obey that God? Can one speak of God philosophically, that is, from within any branch of philosophy? Since the term nature has always been contrasted with what is conventional, the universal God has been called at times nature's God. Is the cogent formulation of a natural theology possible, that is, a theology that can function independently of the historical theology of any particular faith community? Two. Two. Even if such a natural theology could be cogently formulated, could one ground universal moral norms in it in a way similar to the way faith communities have grounded their own moral norms in their own historical theologies? In other words, is natural theology philosophically plausible now as it was for many thinkers in the past? And was natural theology, even when it was more plausible than it is now, was natural theology a sufficient source of public moral norms? Since the terms natural and universal are often used interchangeably, I shall use the terms natural law and universal law interchangeably too. Natural theology assumes that there is evidence from the external world of a creator God who rules the world in a law-like manner. Thus, Thomas Aquinas' fifth way of proving the existence of God is, quote, taken from the governance of things as gumerationi rerum, we see that things which lack knowledge, such as natural bodies, act for an end, and this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. Hence, it is plain that they achieve their end not fortuitously, but designedly, ex etsioni perveniunt uh, ad finum, close quote. A Ken is, states that, quote, the unfailing order, ipse ordicertus we observe in things is a sign of their being governed, However, do we really really derive our sense of lawfulness, our sense of being commanded to do what is good, from what we have learned from the orderliness of the non-human world? Even during Aquinas' time, when the reigning paradigm in natural science was a teleological one, when the finite universe was taken to be a good deal tidier than our messier infinite universe, it was still quite a stretch to conclude from our experience of the external world that physical entities were being directed to their natural purposes by a superior power and intelligence. Even then, it was quite a stretch to conclude that the one God is in any way commanding all natural entities to move to their final destination. In Aristotelian science, the science employed in Aquinas's day, natural ends, tele, are not designed into entities by an external and superior power and intelligence. Rather, natural ends are imminent within entities themselves. As such, they actualize themselves. They are not commanded, even figuratively, towards their natural ends in any way that suggests external superior causality. Indeed, intersubjective causality, where one person commands or bids another person to do something, is always more impressive than natural causality. It exhibits a higher intelligence and a technologically more effective power than the forces of nature. As such, we have to assume that we humans can improve upon natural material that is given to us, rather than derive from that natural material, a model upon which to direct our own lives. And let it be recalled that at the very beginnings of philosophy, Socrates explicitly argued that physics, even astrophysics, had no guidance to offer him in making moral choices. Since Galileo and Newton, we no longer imply, employ a teleological paradigm in natural science, hence it is even more difficult to derive from nature anything like a view of causality that sees it as the action of a thinking creative being, one whose superior creativity inspires us to formulate moral norms for ourselves in a process of imitatio dei, the imitation of God. As both quantum physicists and evolutionary biologists have taught us, nature's creative efforts are quite sloppy when compared with our own. Nature evidences more power than intelligence. Thus, what these scientists have taught us about nature hardly elicits worship, much less normative imitation. Indeed, in the biblical account of creation, humans are to subdue the earth and rule it, Genesis 1.28, to work it and to preserve it, Genesis 2.15. But earthly nature is not to rule over humans. As for the heavens, like the earth, they are ruled by God. But we do not know how they are so ruled. That is why their nature is not a commanding paradigm, neither theoretically nor practically. Quote, and from the signs of the heavens, do not be in awe. Jeremiah 10.2. In fact, one of the greatest achievements of the religion of ancient Israel was to demystify and depersonalize extraterrestrial reality. In the biblical narrative, no nature, whether earthly or heavenly, was taken to be able to speak to us, much less command us, or even mediate a commandment from God. Let it be recalled how God only answered Job that he governs the whole universe, but not how he governs it, let alone why he governs it the way he does. Thus, in the speech from the whirlwind, Job is finally told by God, quote, where were you when I established the earth? Pray tell if you know with any understanding, be not. Do you know the laws of heaven to locate its rule, Mistaro on earth? Job 38, 4, and 33. The theoretical as well as the practical problems of basing natural universal law on natural theology are well appreciated by the contemporary Thomistic philosopher John Finnis. He writes, It is true that the natural law theology of, say, Aristotle and Aquinas goes along with the teleological conception of nature and in the case of Aquinas, with the theory of divine providence and eternal law. Well, what needs to be shown is that the conception of human good entertained by these theorists is dependent upon this wider framework. There is much to be said for the view that the order of dependence was precisely the opposite, that the teleological conception of nature was made plausible, indeed conceivable by analogy with the introspectively luminous self-evident structure of human well-being practical reasoning, and human purpose of action. There's a quote from John Finnis's great work, Natural Law and Natural Rights. So whether one holds an imminent view of natural teleology, as does Aristotle, or a transcendent view of natural causality, as does Aquinas, largely influenced by Maimonides, neither view gives us a sufficient basis for the type of natural law philosophy that can be used to intelligently justify moral claims such as the claim to religious liberty. We need be wary of natural theology attempting to be philosophy. Nevertheless, because of its venerable history and its use by the likes of Maimonides, Aquinas, and Calvin, certain natural law theorists today still quite uncritically make the highly tenuous connection between natural theology and natural law. They still assume that natural law addresses its commands to human nature that is part of Nature, capital N, as a whole. But it seems more sound, both philosophically and theologically, to assign the whole question of God's relation to the extra-human cosmos to revealed theology, which tells us that there is an intelligent order operating in the cosmos, but an order that does not show itself to us directly, even generally, let alone specifically. A natural law case, especially a natural law claim for religious liberty, is better formulated without an appeal to natural theology can one cogently mention God in a natural law theory when natural theology, which constituted the chief element in pre-modern metaphysics, is no longer regarded to be desirable, necessary, or even possible by most modern thinkers and with good reason? So must philosophers follow, for example, Hans Kelsen's philosophical rejection of natural law because it is essentially inseparable from by now philosophically discredited natural theology? Or must theologians follow, for example, Karl Barth's theological rejection of natural law because it is essentially inseparable from theologically discredited natural theology? The question, then, is whether or not one can connect God with an ethics that is based neither on natural nor unrevealed theology. Can God be connected to a more philosophically compelling ethics today? Part 4, Natural Rights. Some see the modern idea of natural rights to be a complete break with the classical idea of natural law. As such, any similarity between the way classical natural law theory deals with God and the way modern natural rights theory deals with God is erroneous. Modern natural rights theory is taken to be essentially atheistic. Thus, when modern natural rights theorists like Hobbes or Spinoza even mention God, it should be seen as a mere sop to their contemporary societies in which most of the people, and almost all the powerful people, were theists. So when these modern natural rights theorists speak of God, they are really winking at the few philosophers who can appreciate what they mean, how they truly understand themselves, as Leo Strauss liked to put it. One can see how this atheistic conclusion about modern natural rights theory was reached. If none of these modern natural rights theorists regards biblical law with its commanding God to be authoritative anymore, and if their invocation of natural theology is so uncritical, then it would seem that there is simply no other theistic alternative. I would nigh luck to argue that there is an alternative, that one can connect God to a natural rights ethics without natural theology altogether, and aside from revelational theology for the time being. I attempt to do so now by a radical reading of the most famous sentence in the United States Declaration of Independence, Written and published by Thomas Jefferson in 1776. My reading is radical because I try, I shall try to see meanings in that sentence that Jefferson himself would probably not have seen, but meanings that he nonetheless could not reject as contrary to his own intentions in principle. My reading of that sentence takes it to be a philosophical statement that admits of ongoing philosophical interpretations. Some may I, might say I'm deconstructing him. We all know the sentence by heart, but let me refresh your memory anyway. Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, First, what is meant by a self-evident truth? Surely the equality of all human beings is not self-evident. Wouldn't it be more self-evident to most people to say that all humans are not created equal? Humans are patently different, some younger, some older, some weaker, some stronger, some smarter, some dumber. And of course, we normally treat different humans differently. What is appropriate treatment of a child is quite different from what is appropriate treatment of a grandparent, etc. So is there anywhere where we actually treat all humans equally or where we ought to treat them equally? Where is the self-evident equality to be found? Well, Isn't the self-evident equality of humans something that is inherent in the proceedings of a court of law? That is a court of law where the due process of law obtains. Here, doesn't every person have an equal claim to justice because every person is equally subject to the commands of the law whose violation is being adjudicated in that court of law? That is why the due process of law is evidently contradicted if a court of law treats those standing before it for justice unequally. Quote, who shall not pervert justice by privileging any person lo panim, in judgment, Deuteronomy 16, 19. This is the best expression of the truth of, of the law not being a respecter of persons. So taking a bribe to treat one litigant more favorably than the other is the prime example of such partiality, such unequal justice. That is why the prohibition of taking a bribe follows upon the more general prohibition of respecting persons in judgment in the norm just cited from the Bible, as a prime illustration of this universally evident truth. I'm not citing it as biblical authority. I'm citing the Bible as illustrating a universally evident truth. Now, if persons are to be treated equally as litigants in a court of law where the due process of law obtains, and that is because they are all equally subject to the law by which they are being adjudicated, where does that prior law come from? Where from are all these human beings commanded to practice the law by which they might be adjudicated should they be called to be litigants in a civil or criminal trial. Now, if one says that this commanding source, this authoritative foundation is the state, that begs the question since one can then ask what is the source of the state's authority? Why do I have to obey its commands? So much so that this obligation makes me subject to the adjudication of its courts if I am indicted for possible violation of those commands. Two answers are usually given to this overall question. One of them answers the question in a morally objectionable way. The other one begs the question altogether. To answer that the state has prima facie authority is to assume that the power of the state need not justify itself. But if that is the case, then the state cannot make moral claims on our obedience because the state cannot justify those claims to be rights. Moral claims must be justifiable in order to elicit rational consent which is wholly different from terrified surrender. Therefore, the state, so unjustifiably conceived, can only exercise its claims by the use of force. Accordingly, we only obey the commands of the state because we fear its power to harm us if we disobey those commands. Needless to say, this approach makes it impossible to argue against any kind of tyranny, whether of the ancient, medieval, or modern variety. And in fact... It is no accident that states who equate might with right, that is, their might with what is right for everybody under their rule, such states frequently see themselves to be divine. They act in the political realm according to Anselm's definition of the name God in the ontological realm, namely, that which nothing greater can be thought. And of course, if there is no higher ontological realm, some, then the political realm takes its ultimate place by default. Now, even though the state is defined as a corporate person, in fact, the greater its power, the more it needs to be governed by one individual person. Thus, the abstract divinization of the state turns out to be the divinization of a real person. Think of the cults devised by and for Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, or Saddam Hussein. Our good sense of horror at this prospect makes us realize how the ancient prohibition of idolatry even precedes any certainty on our part whether there is God or not. Even before we have any uncertainty that there is God, we are keenly aware of what is not God and what ought not to be made into God. That was a point, Mutandus Mutandus, made by both Paul and the ancient rabbis. Now, the usual way out of this idolatrous conundrum is to invoke popular sovereignty, the type of sovereignty of the opening words of the Constitution of the United States, quote, we the people of the United States to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Yet that merely substitutes the people as autonomous persons, plural, for the state as an autonomous person, singular. But if that is the case, we hardly have the equality of which the Declaration of Independence so forcibly speaks. After all, if autonomy is power, even the power of intelligence, power is hardly distributed equally. So, where does the equality, especially the equality of rights, come from? That is the equality which the Declaration declares to be endemic to human nature, and which our experience of the due process of law ever reminds us. Neither the autonomy of corporate power nor the autonomy of an aggregate of autonomous persons, Rousseau's general will, can give us the equality that is so emphasized by our democratic traditions and our human experience of whatever justice is possible in this fallible world. That being the case, it would seem that the Declaration deals with the question of law, while the Constitution only deals with the political procedures for administering that law and adjudicating according to it. But since these political procedures presuppose the law, the Declaration, which speaks of laws of nature, is the true preamble to the Constitution, logically speaking. And here I'm giving philosophical expression to an historical point made by a venerable American historian, the late Professor Avery Craven, in an unforgettable lecture I heard him deliver when I was a first year undergraduate at the University of Chicago 47 years ago this month of November. I do hope that undergraduates here at Princeton, or any university for that matter, will hear some lecture now they will still remember so vividly when they reach my age. Five, divine endowment. The Declaration speaks of all men, today we would say all humans, being, quote, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But how is one endowed with a right? And why is that endowment, though self-evident, not self-referential? That is, why can it not be something the bearers of these rights by themselves Give to themselves, neither collectively nor individually. In other words, why are these rights examples of heteronomy, understood to be a law from another, heteros in Greek, rather than autonomy, understood to be a law from oneself, autos in Greek? The reason one needs to look upon his or her rights as endowments rather than as innate properties is because of the sense that we are commanded to pursue our rights and the rights of all others like ourselves. Following our reading of the Declaration, That means we feel commanded to pursue our rights, to make our claims to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thus, we are only able to exercise these rights to make these justified claims because we regard them to be commandments from our Creator. Indeed, we might say that God creates us humans uniquely by commanding us to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And we shall inevitably eventually see how the pursuit of these three rights can best be taken as three instances of the exercise of one right, which is the right to practice one's religion. Furthermore, because I have been so commanded by God, I am empowered to make claims for my life, liberty, and for the pursuit of happiness. Moreover, since I regard these divine commandments to be categorical imperatives, these commandments pertain to any and all of God's human creatures. They are universalizable. They pertain to anyone under the same general circumstances. As such, my pursuit of what I've been commanded must include my pursuit of the opportunity to keep these commandments for all others as well. Like all categorical, such categorical imperatives, the subject of these commandments is we, not I. They're public, not private. To illustrate how these commandments are received, how one is endowed with them, let me quote to you a powerful statement of how the first commandment, the commandment to live, was received in the most extreme circumstances possible in Auschwitz, by a Polish prisoner there, who wondrously, like all the survivors, lived afterwards, and who had enough presence of mind to write a deeply moving, reflective memoir shortly after her liberation. Lagia Lewinska writes, They had condemned us to die in our own filth. They wished to abase us, to destroy our human dignity, to efface every vestige of humanity, to fill us with horror and contempt towards ourselves and our fellows. But from the instant I grasped the motivating principle, it was as if I had been awakened from a dream. I felt under orders to live. And if I did die in Auschwitz, it would be as a human being, I would hold on to my dignity. Quote. In his commentary on this cri de cœur, the Jewish philosopher Emil Fackenheim, writing, I might add, about this non-Jewish woman, asks, quote, she felt under orders to live. We ask, whose orders? Why did she wish to obey? And above all, where did she get the strength? Once again, willpower and natural desire are both inadequate. Once again, we have touched an ultimate. Close quote. In other words, autonomy, be it the autonomy of self-creation or the autonomy of raw instinct, is simply not enough to explain the claim to live that was made on Pelagia Levinska a claim to which she responded dutifully and a claim that her Nazi persecutors rejected hideously, a rejection that many would like to believe will be avenged by the divine judge of the universe, the source of the very commandment Polagia Levinska kept with such difficulty and which the Nazi criminals violated with such glee. But unlike Polagia Levinska, who hesitates to name the sources of these orders God, and who are we, Fakenheim reminds us, to tell her what to say, Nonetheless, those who wish to pick up on Levinska's claim to life might well be advised to make it in the name of God. That is the same God who created her and us in his image and likeness, imago Dei, and who made that unique creation known to us through our experience of being created to live at times in spite of our will and in spite of our natural instincts. We are to live in spite of our will, and here Fackenheim clearly has the Kantian autonomous will in mind, since one's rational will could easily conclude that suicide would be the only possible exercise of our autonomy under Auschwitz-like circumstances. And we are to live in spite of our natural instincts, and here Fackenheim clearly has something like Bergson's Elan Vital in mind, since from these instincts we could easily conclude that death is preferable to life under Auschwitz-like circumstances. Perhaps this is what Freud meant by the Todestried, the death drive. We can thus appreciate the insight of Karl Barth, though accepting Kant's existence that moral law be universalizable, nonetheless rejects Kant's avoidance of a truly transcendent source of moral law. Barth writes, quote, If there is an ought, it must not be the product of my own will, but touch from the outside the whole area of what I can will of myself. The essence of the idea of obligation is not that I demand something from myself, but that with all I am demanding of myself I am myself demanded, Close quote. Indeed, what Bart has exposed is the great paradox of Kantian ethics. How can I be both the source and the subject of the same act? Isn't the verb command a transitive verb? As such, how can the one who commands and the one who is commanded be the same unique person? And if one attempts to resolve this paradox by splitting the self into a higher commanding self and a lower commanded self, then wouldn't it be better to see one's rational will, that higher self, as being obedient to the will of God who creates it through his commandments, commandments addressed to one's rational will. Isn't a real transcendent other more authoritative than an imminent imagined other? As Bart puts it, quote, conscience is the totality of our self-consciousness insofar as it can receive and proclaim the command of God as it comes to us. The command is not revealed and given by conscience, but to conscience. Close quote. That is what as Barth puts it, alone makes it an effectual command. I differ with Bart, though, by assuming that divine command can be the authentic substance of natural law. One needs to add the naming of God as the source of the commandment to live, and hence the right to live, lest Polagia Levinska's feeling be confused with some sort of blind impulse, the same sort of impulse that is claimed by the very criminals who felt impelled to torture her and kill her had they had the chance. By naming God as the source of both the commandment and the right to life, we turn it into a universal imperative from the creator of the universe, who has given the earth to his human creatures, that it might be a self safe dwelling for all of us, to protect us from the violence of the natural world without and the violence of our own destructive impulses within. In other words, Pelagia Levinska's feeling, which was the infinite moti- which was the immediate motivation of her active affirmation of her life and dignity, is a justified claim, an authentic right. First, God's creative claim on her, and then her claim on all others. Minimally, not to thwart her exercise of that commanded right. Maximally, to aid her in its fulfillment. That is what essentially distinguishes a true right from the anti-universal, ultimately nihilistic claims of murderers and other criminals. These criminal claims have no justification that can be accepted by anyone other than the criminals themselves and their accomplices. Whatever orders these criminals feel compelled by could not be the commandments of the creator God since they attempt to destroy, not enhance, the created world. In the end, didn't Hitler kill himself when he ran out of victims? This understanding of natural right, most immediately the natural right to life, does not require require an acceptance of either revealed theology or natural theology to be a valid philosophical argument. This understanding of natural right does not require an acceptance of anyone's revealed theology since there need be no historical paradigm in order for one to have an experience of being commanded by God to fulfill God's purpose in creating him or her or anyone else in the first place. In fact, such experiences have been reported by persons from a variety of religious traditions, as well as by persons who do not consider themselves part of any religious tradition at all. And even when experienced by persons from religious traditions, a self-evident truth has been, thrown, has been shown through the, that general experience. That is, the truth presents itself here to be affirmed in action by those who have so experienced it. It is not necessarily derived from any commandment written in anyone's scripture, even if there is such a commandment in someone's scripture with which this self-evident truth is wholly consistent. In fact, one could say that such scriptural commandments themselves presuppose what is experienced either before or outside of historical revelation. Now, this understanding of natural right does not require an acceptance of what we have seen to be natural theology. That is because it does not require a theoretical proof of the existence of God and then the logical derivation of the practical reason that constitutes natural rights from this proof of nature's God. So, in fact, following the line of thought about the Declaration of Independence, we shall have to interpret Jefferson's invocation of nature's God in a way that takes the term nature to refer to the essential human condition universal and immutable, and not refer to the universe as a larger encompassing whole. But if we take nature here to be what it probably meant to Jefferson, the connection between nature and natural rights as the rights of man is one lacking any compelling logical connection. Making this break with the view that nature is as, as a whole of which we are but a part, a view best put forth by Spinoza, one which Kant so thoroughly demolished in the critique of pure reason, we can employ Kant's logic here in taking the existence of God to be a postulate of pure practical reason. Theoretical or scientific reason cannot tell us anything about God or God's relations to the non-human world, nor can it tell us how human praxis fits into that larger world. We can employ Kant's logic even though Kant's postulation of God is inadequate to the name God, minimally denoting that which nothing greater can be conceived. For Kant, the God he postulated serves as a redeemer of human action, but human action whose ground remains human autonomy. It is God alone who can make moral action truly and fully effective, but in a world beyond this mortal world, this veil of tears. Nevertheless, Kant's God is subordinate to the ultimate project of human reason as a means is subordinate to its end. Kant's postulated redeemer of human moral impotence is not the creator in whose image and likeness humans are made. It is not the God through whose commandments to live, to exercise liberty, and to pursue happiness give us our true human identity in the world. So I shall follow Kant's logic by analogy, but as a theologian, I cannot in good faith accept either the premises or the conclusions his logic employs. I cannot in... But then again, practical moral reasoning does not require one to be a Kantian, when constituting its substance as a philosopher either. My epistemology is heavily Kantian, but my ontology is decidedly non-Kantian. By a postulate of pure practical reason, Kant says, I understand a theoretical proposition which is not as such demonstrable, er but which is an inseparable corollary of an a priori unconditionally valid practical law. Now something that is not demonstrable has no independent truth value. At most, it offers a more plausible explanation of a law than competing explanations, yet there is no proof of its separate existence. It is not what Kant would consider to be a direct object of experience of the external world or what is reasonably inferred from that experience. Thus, it is always tentative and never fully conclusive. In our case, presuming, that is postulating, God's general commandment to be the source of moral law out of which natural rights emerge seems to be a more satisfying explanation of moral obligation than postulating human autonomy as the ground of that obligation, which is what Kant does. Indeed, Kant errs in thinking that the ground or source of moral obligation can be directly intuited in human autonomy and thus itself not be postulated. Human autonomy is as much of a postulate as the existence of God, even for practical or moral reason. Moreover, I think it more plausible to postulate to presume that God is the source of moral law than to presume humans are autonomous in any truly foundational way. Since neither of these presumptions can be independently proved, it would seem that the more plausible presumption should recommend itself to us over its nearest philosophical rivals. Finally, how are natural rights unalienable? If one postulates that these rights come from God through God's commandments to all humans to live, to be free, and to seek happiness as the ultimate good, then, as Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. That is, these endowed rights, these divine entitlements, can be taken away from us by their divine create, giver. And our experience tells us they're, in fact, taken away from us all the time. As far as God's concerned, these human rights are most definitely alienable. God kills us by sending death. God removes our liberty by making some of us mentally incompetent. God prevents our attainment of ultimate happiness when he condemns some of us to oblivion in this world or in the world to come. In other words, God's judgment trumps any claims we might have on him for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As commandments, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness are surely alienated when God removes from us the ability to fulfill them. Indeed, they are only unalienable in relation to other humans whom we claim either not to interfere with our commanded pursuits or to actually help us pursue them. Now, of course, the unalienable character of rights is itself a claim and not a fact. It is an ought, not an is. We all know too well that other humans can and do take away our possibility to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Surely, Pelagia Levinska's Auschwitz persecutors almost removed her right to life. They did remove her life to liberty while she was under their control, and for all we know, they made her pursuit of ultimate happiness impossible even after her liberation from the death camp, at least in this world. Nevertheless, we have a persistent claim on others for life, liberty, and happiness, a claim we certainly do not have on God. As a right, but not as a fact, these other human beings cannot take it away from us. Furthermore, when they do take it away from us, then we have a claim against them. In a society where the due process of law obtains, we, or if we've been killed, others on our behalf, can claim that the crimes that did alienate us from our life, our liberty, and our pursuit of happiness be avenged. Either by the payment of the criminal's property, restitution, the loss of the criminal's liberty, imprisonment, or even the loss of the criminal's life, capital punishment. Part six, life, liberty, and happiness. We have seen how one pursues life by feeling commanded to do so by higher authority, under orders in Pelagia Levinska's memorable words, and how one's being so commanded is how he or she then exercised the right. To pursue life is a claim upon one's society and its government. Or in Pelagi Lavinsa's case, it is the right to resist the counterclaim of those governing her for her to actively cooperate in their program of killing her, first spiritually and finally physically. But understanding the right to life to be the right to pursue life requires a slight emendation of Jefferson's own words in the Declaration of Independence. It will recall that we have rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But I think that when we ponder just what the right to life means, and it's more than a slogan by those who oppose abortion, it has wider meanings than that, although not less, we realize that the right to life is the right to pursue life, especially to pursue life as something to be actively furthered and not just as something to be passively accepted as already granted. The same is true as we shall see shortly with liberty. So I would amend Jefferson's sentence, no better reinterpret Jefferson's sentence, uh, not wanting to be as arrogant as Jefferson himself as when he was prepared his own amended version of the Bible, no less, uh, I would amend the sentence to now say the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. These pursuits, then, are inalienable rights, which only God may ever take away from me, but never man, except on the rare occurrences when I grossly abuse them. When it comes to the pursuit of life, we must see this pursuit as entailing the pursuit of communal life, which is endemic to our human nature. The first community we seek is our family, not so much as the family we already have, but the family we desire to found to establish in marriage. And that pursuit of marriage is the foundation of family as a norm and not just as a fact, is itself the pursuit of life when its prime, although not exclusive purpose, is the procreation and rearing of new human life. Furthermore, this pursuit of the procreation of life is not just the fulfillment of the biological urge for genetic reproduction, it is even more so the moral choice to further our communal identity into a new generation. As such, this pursuit is the fulfillment of a commandment, which then leads to the exercise of a right or claim on those having political power over us. Once again, it is a minimal claim of non-interference in the fulfillment of this commandment by the government. It is also a maximal claim for active political and legal support of our pursuit of a fully communal familial life. An example of how this right to life is pursued is the case of two friends of mine. An old couple now who married and quickly had children immediately upon their liberation in 1945 from the Bergen-Belsen death camp. Why do they desire to marry immediately upon their liberation from the Nazi terror? As the husband put it in his typically blunt manner, quote, it was not because we had to fulfill our sexual urges now that we were not starving. In the near moral anarchy of the period immediately after the war in occupied Germany, there was no lack of opportunities for sex. He said, quote, it was because we had to tell ourselves and tell the world that we were alive, not dead, that we were going to rebuild our Jewish family, and that we were going to survive into the future by having Jewish children. In other words, my friends wanted to live and not just survive. And that meant that they wanted to live as Jews in a Jewish family, extending itself into the future by having Jewish children. I can assume that other survivors, Poles like Polagia Levinska, felt much the same way. Hence, this commandment is not peculiarly Jewish. And not being religiously observant or even very knowledgeable of traditional Jewish teaching at the time, my two friends, who became the husband and wife and then the parents they so wanted to be, actually learned this commandment from their experience of being incarcerated in a death camp and then liberated it from, from it just before their persecutors could kill them as planned. I don't think they originally consulted the Torah. The commandment they desired to perform then became a right they exercised by claiming permission to civilly marry from the British Occupation Force, who then had political authority over them as displaced persons who were stateless at the time. Furthermore, to continue our example, my two friends, who, although not being religiously observant, were not atheists either, decided they wanted a rabbi to officiate their wedding ceremony. By so doing, they were pursuing liberty, specifically their right to freely, that is, with liberty— Practice a religion into whose community they were now including themselves, however minimally at the time, that desire for a rabbinical celebration of their marriage followed from their desire for a fully human communal familial life. If they had chosen only to have a civil ceremony, which is possible, then they would have not been following the commandment they felt to live as Jews. The initiation of their marriage would not have had a Jewish stamp on it, and they could not very well if lead them it could not very well lead them to have. Jewish content in the home they planned for themselves in Canada, where they immigrated in 1949 after four miserable but still not life-threatening years in a displaced person's camp in Germany. In the cultural sense, as well as in the political sense, if they had not pursued both life and liberty, they would have been stateless. They would have still been homeless in the world had they not sought out the rabbi for their wedding. Finally, we come to the pursuit of happiness. When we believe we are endowed by our creator with the right to pursue happiness, just what sort of happiness are we commanded to pursue? Before we can exercise our right to pursue happiness, which is our claim upon our government to let us pursue happiness and for that government to support that pursuit, we need to understand what it is we are claiming. If happiness means whatever we happen to regard as a good to be pursued, then what is being pursued might well be as multifarious as the number of people in such hot pursuit. Thus, if one follows what John Rawls advocated in his influential 1971 book, A Theory of Justice, the happiness to be pursued could be almost anything, but as long as this exercise doesn't harm others or threaten others with harm. But if almost any pursuit is what is meant by the pursuit of happiness, can one also insist with any cogency that this right is unalienable, that it is a prior personal claim on society and its government, rather than being a very much revocable or alienable entitlement from the state? Would one claim, for example, one's happiness in owning a gun to be an unalienable prior right, whose ontological or natural priority is something the state is duty-bound to respect? Of course, there are people who do make such a claim, but that usually leads them to treat the Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, especially its second clause, quote, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, quote unquote, as if it were a divine revelation. But that is something both religious people and secularists would vociferously deny. And that no way indicates uh, whether one, uh, it's a good or bad thing for people to own guns. It's justification of it. And if that example jars some of my friends on the political right, I could just as easily jar some of my friends on the political left by citing as an example of misplaced inalienability their insistence that the right to privacy, uh, including the right to bodily privacy, uh, is some sort of natural right when in fact it is only an entitlement from the state at present. In both cases, the state can rescind its entitlement of these permissions, either partially or even totally, when the state, either through the legislature or the courts, judges such permissions to be contrary to the common good of society. In other words, no one enters the social contract with such rights, the I've, examples I've given, already in hand. In philosophical language, they're a posteriori, not a priori, both logically and chronologically. In fact, the pursuit of happiness is too precious to be rightfully exercised for anything less than the pursuit of the summum bonum, the highest good, that highest good is so high that it is inevitably pursued in the way most people have always pursued God. Only that which nothing greater can be thought, which is the most minimal definition of the name God, could possibly qualify as the summum bonum, the highest good, whom either one pursues or flees, but whose claims on us no one can be indifferent. As T.S. Eliot put it so forcefully in his play about the martyrdom of Archbishop Thomas of Beckett, Murder in the Cathedral, A martyrdom Beckett, suffered because of his pursuit of God's commanding presence, quote, those who deny thee could not deny if thou didst not exist, close quote. In other words, the vehemence of those who pursue pursue God is matched by the vehemence of those who flee from God. Such vehemence intends a real, not an imaginary object, even if some of the deniers cannot face their real intention. That is why civil society cannot be indifferent to either the free pursuit of one highest good a free pursuit that must admit the right of a free anti-pursuit if it itself is liberty, that is liberal in the original sense of the term. Therefore, the pursuit of life in its fullness becomes the pursuit of the liberty to pursue happiness as a transcendent reality who religious people believe is both the origin and the end of human life. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God, Isaiah 44.6. The duty of society, both formally and even informally, is to enable us to pursue or flee from the one who beckons us as the highest good. Negatively, that means society does not interfere in that pursuit, either by dictating it specifically or even generally, or by society claiming divine prerogatives for itself in the person of either its leaders or its institutions, thus substituting itself for God. Positively, that means that the state sees the pursuit of God being conducted by the majority of its citizens to be in the interest of the common good. Here, the common good is somewhat ironically itself negative, since I think it means... It is in the interest of the state that its citizens look elsewhere for their ultimate happiness, thus having more realistically modest expectations on what the state can do, which is to facilitate its citizens' pursuit of imminent rather than transcendent ends. By ordinary criteria, which are the only criteria philosophy can employ, we can only postulate that God commands. But by these ordinary criteria, which only let us speak of a trace of the divine in our basic moral norms, We cannot constitute what a real, direct relationship with this God is. As a Jew, I believe that such a relationship, at least for me and my people, obtains in our covenant with God and the law, the Torah, that gives that covenantal relationship its content. Hence, my philosophical invocation of God here is my minimal, not my maximal existential position. The name God I invoked here is not the same name of God I invoke in prayer, and it is not the name of God I would invoke were I required to die as a martyr for the divine name, Kiddush Hashem. It is the same God, but the relationship with the same God is quite different when viewed theologically than when viewed philosophically. As such, God is named differently there than here. So I end this lecture with a question. Is religious liberty an issue in a context that is explicitly and not just implicitly religious? Or is religious liberty an issue where God is both quoted and addressed continually? My tentative answer is yes. God willing, I shall spell out that answer in the next and concluding lecture in this series a lecture on Religious Liberty and Theology. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We have some time for questions. Uh, as is the Tradition of Madison program, we'd like to open it up first to uh, students if there are students with questions uh, before we open it up uh, more more generally.
1: Uh, do you want to call the people? I uh, you can go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, All right. I'm not going to ask if you're a student. Are you? You look like a student. We're all students. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Could you stand up, and then we can hear the question better. Yeah. You Well, of course, I mean, it's, it's, it's usually uh, argued by those who are impatient with philosophical argument that, um, well, what difference does it make? Nobody's going to listen to it anyway, and therefore we have to employ other kind of arguments. And those other arguments inevitably become arguments from political power. You know, uh, we can get X number of people to the polls and uh, uh, this sort of thing. But, but that's, that's dangerous because, in principle, uh, it uh, uh, means that really there is no public argument or it's a simply a question of exercising power rather than arguments based upon on right or reason, uh, as opposed to those kind of uh, arguments. But I think that actually uh, they can be effective, maybe not in the short run, but in the long run, uh, of simply, once again, presenting a, a plausible philosophical argument for some of the public claims that uh, are made, uh, and insisting that those who uh, uh, would re- reject religion out of hand uh, engage in some kind of rational uh, discourse. And at times, you can almost, you know, almost be forced, for example, like, in a, like in a, where it involves a legal trial or whatever. So I think that it's very important. I know that sometimes religious people become impatient, but in the next lecture, I'm going to deal with impatience of whether theological claims are simply power claims or are based on their own kinds of reasons, uh, even within religious communities. And I, I, I know there's a tremendous frustration. They're not going to listen to us anyway. Uh, But in the long run, one has to make those type of arguments, or else then one, in effect, says the arguments that are made by ultra-secularists, and that is that religious people really don't belong in a democratic society. They're really anti-democratic, and uh, therefore they are uh, a menace to uh, democratic reality. And so therefore I think that for that reason alone, religious people have to convince themselves that they can make public uh, arguments uh, even though they might only be effective in the long run, rather than in the in, in the short run. Yes, you just so we can hear you, yes. I, I, now, what I meant by religion, and this was, is this was why I had the business about faith there, uh, I regard theology uh, as all theology, uh, or this is my own tradition, but I suspect there are others who, who would agree with me, as being based upon historical revelation. God spoke to a particular group of people, or singular group of people, to make that distinction. Uh Therefore, I do not think that in the context of a multicultural society, one can come and, let's say, with a Bible in hand and say, thus saith the Lord or uh, or that sort of thing. That that is inappropriate in terms of that context. And Indeed, religious traditions themselves in earlier uh, examples did not make those kind of claims in public. They made actually more philosophically valid claims. So in that sense, yes, I don't think that this can be the case. E- people can identify clearly where they're coming from. And if somebody says, well, is that, is that not a rationalization for your theology? One can say that it happens to be that this philosophical claim agrees with my theology, but my theology has a lot more things to say that I can nearly can, cannot say as claims upon a uh, general society. Well, I think that the the historical revelations simply need to be uh, understood when invoked as, in effect, corroborating uh, uh, in a certain important way uh, what is already known to human reason. Um, I'll give an example, and it's it's kind of a a, a controversial example. I um, was an expert witness in the Ten Commandments trial. now, to be perfectly honest, I mean, had Judge Moore asked me before he put in the monument, should he have done it, I may have made some arguments, whatever. And when I was interviewed on television, all they wanted to know was had he broken the law or not. And I kept saying, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer. But um, the way he presented it, I mean, what everyone thinks of it personally and his subsequent behavior and whatever, just, just the point that he made was that the Ten Commandments uh, are, have been invoked. Not He was not invoking them as specific to my lawyer, and the Lord you know, spoken to Moses and, and I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, but rather it's expressing certain moral truths uh that um, revelation confirmed but not did not initiate. And and, and the biblical example that I gave in, in the testimony was thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. Uh clearly that was not introduced even in the Bible by the Ten Commandments because Cain is held responsible for the murder of his brother Abel. He's supposed to have known that and clearly there were no tablets, you know, commandments on the tablets and, and, and whatever. So I think that under those circumstances, uh, that can very much be the case. And I think the religious people have to clearly indicate that there are many uh, uh, commandments that are preserved by their traditions, which they in no way make as uh, claims upon the larger multicultural society. Uh, and, of course, what happens is, is that there, uh, in terms of making these claims, there there are two ways. Number one is you find parallels in other cultures. So it's not just your culture that's teaching this. And then you do the type of argument or type of philosophical argument that I was trying to do in this lecture, indicating that this can be regarded as a constant in, in the human condition feeling uh, of being commanded, of being urged on to seek life, liberty, and, uh, and the pursuit of happiness. And once one makes that distinction, then I think one makes the distinction between philosophy and theology. Uh, now, if you're a theologian who doesn't think that philosophy has any place whatsoever in theology, then I think you have a problem in terms of speaking in public, but that. Uh, I mean, that becomes, uh, you know, a, a long kind of process and has to be kind of spelled
0: out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. this
1: Um, no, I think that uh, actually, I mean, one can, uh, I, I think, show, uh, I don't know, with the university, but generally, uh, that, that, that this, this, this is quite common. I mean, this, this, this statement of, she did not make it as a religious statement. She felt under orders, touch and ultimate, uh, uh, and that sort of thing. And I think that certainly one could, um, you know, understand that. And uh, if one didn't have a direct experience of it, nonetheless postulate it as the best explanation of what one did experience. Uh, Polagia-Lavinska didn't choose to do that, but I think that that can be done in uh, uh, expecting that. But it does not uh, require a separate proof of the existence of God. And uh, can one, is there some you know, external corroboration of it? No. Uh, and that's why it's religiously uh, uh, insufficient. Uh, but I think as a moral argument, uh, it is a better moral argument, and Kant, who postulates autonomy as the foundation of morality, which is every much is much of a postulate, even though he claims it's not, uh, then uh, the, 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 then that sort of thing. So I think that one can definitely find that, and uh, obviously this, this 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 will to live is something that cannot be simply reduced to autonomy or to raw instinct, uh, because in both of those cases, both autonomy and raw instinct could have easily led pluga Levinska to conclude that she was better off dead than alive um so i mean in 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 in, in that sense but it, but it is something which only need be postulated uh and not in any way verified uh yeah yes up there Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think no, it's not, it's not a question of, of since Kant. I mean, even even Kant himself said he was just formulating uh, moral reasoning as you know had in you know uh, forever or whatever. But um, no, I think that this 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 is important once again in, in answer to the first question, uh, because if one um, cannot make these kind of philosophical claims in public, then religious people. Uh, have to basically adopt a sectarian mode, and that is separate themselves, Uh, which in effect has been argued by Stanley Hauerwas. Uh, They basically have to regard themselves, the the, the, the kind of the Mennonite position, which I talked about in the the last lecture. Uh, I don't think that that is necessary. First, I don't think it's possible. You're part of the society with, you know, whether you like it or not, you're at least a participant in the society. Uh, And therefore, I think that it's extremely important, and uh, certainly in the Jewish tradition, uh, when Jews had to participate in societies that were not under total Jewish control, which is practically all of the time, uh, they had to develop philosophical arguments to justify their position, their their participation in that society. Uh, and it had to be done by what seems to be uh, notions of what the nature of law is, uh, even in the, the Babylonian Talmud, which seemingly was not influenced by the Greek philosophers at all. Uh And I think that that is an important point because the only other point is either to totally give in to ideologies that are contrary to one's religious position uh, or to become a sectarian. And uh, at least I don't care to be either. uh, And I suspect that most religious people in our society don't care to be either. And therefore, I think they need to do their uh, philosophical homework or have it done for them uh, to present them with the uh how one can make this type of an argument and make and, and the burden of proof be on the accusers of those who say they can't. Well, the implication of that is, is that if one's argument is simply, well, this is what West, Western tradition you know, has always taught, or the Judeo-Christian morality, which in the last lecture I spoke about as being a morality that both Jews and Christians discovered, that they did not claim to have invented, uh, and discovered for the same reasons. Uh, so I, very distinct, I said that there is a Judeo-Christian morality, If it's a morality that is discovered. There's no such thing as a Judeo-Christian religion, which is frequently uh, you know, uh, argued uh, uh, these oh. days, especially by the opponents of it, uh, or what they think it is. Um, but I think that the, the problem there becomes is that if we can only somehow say, "Well, this is our Western tradition, uh, and this is how we've always done it," then when the comple- when, when the constitu- when the what comprises society, different people come in from different areas. What kind of an argument is that? But on the other hand, if we indicate that the United States, which probably more than any other nation, uh, was uh, founded as a philosophical construct, uh, then our appeal is to reason, not to simply uh, tradition, even though obviously there are traditions. Uh, But traditions in the strong sense are based upon historical revelations. Uh, And that becomes something entirely different. Now, it's it's my own opinion, this is my current work, that a social contract, the idea of a social contract, could have only been made by people who are committed to, to historical covenants, that they would be the, the only people who would actually been capable. So so, so in the work of mine that's in press here at, at, at Princeton, um, it's not that the covenant is, is a contract, but covenantal uh, li- people who are living by a covenant seem to be the only people who are capable of making a, uh, a social contract. That's historically the case, too, if one understands 17th century history, especially in England. Uh, so. But when one uses simply, well, this is the way we've always done it, or, 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 or what have you, uh, without any kind of rational argument, then one does things like, for example, in France. Uh, instead of discussing what liber- religious liberty means, we're in outlaw headscarves. Uh, and this shows, I think, an incoherent notion of what role religion plays in, 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 in society at, at all, and therefore represents philosophical coherence at the highest level of the French government. I would hope that uh, in the United States uh, that uh, we would have more and I say that as, as an American, obviously, with a certain degree of chauvinism, but uh, I would hope that we would be able to make uh, uh, arguments uh, for religion, uh, which do not mean the imposition of religion, nor arguments that are directly uh, deduced from theology. Uh, yes? Well, I mean, I think that, that that would be the case. I mean, I think that uh, arguments for, based upon philosophical arguments, based upon reason, uh, as distinct from theological arguments, um, were harder to make uh, when the United States was an overwhelmingly Protestant nation. Um, now, I think one can make an argument that every religious tradition is in some way or other a minority that we are a, a, a nation of, of, of all minorities. There is no majority in any kind of religious sense. Uh, in that way, I think that it makes a greater need for one. So one's not simply tolerating minorities, but one is very much justifying one's minority presence in a multicultural uh, society. So I, th- I think we have a u- unique opportunity now for a philosophical clarity in this society, which wasn't present when it was kind of assumed that everybody in the United States was you know was a white anglo saxon Protestant, or if they weren't they should kind of act like one uh clearly that's not the case now, where I live in canada it's even in some ways easier to make because Canada began as a multicultural society uh by design uh so I think that at, at this point historically uh this would be the case but societies that have an overwhelming number of, of members of the of, of, of one religion uh have a much more difficult problem is why I shouldn't just simply that religion be demanded as a prerequisite of citizenship okay, yeah Well, in a society that doesn't have an official religion, uh, even if 99 and a half are, are, are Protestants, only half a Jew, or, or half a Catholic, or, or, or whatever, uh, then they cannot claim to be governing their society on uh, Protestant principles or Catholic principles or, 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 or uh, uh, Jewish principles. And that would be the case. Now, as I say, if there were an official religion, then you have to, as the Church of England did, you had to tolerate others basically as having the status of dissenters. And, but that's tolerance, and I and I and I was very uh, uh, questioning in the last lecture of tolerance. Uh, as does one really want to be tolerated? Uh, that sounds like an entitlement that can easily be uh, 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 or, or revoked. And one has that uh, problem in, 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 in certain communities, you know, where uh, there's an overwhelming preponderance of one particular group, and they have, sometimes we have to they have to put the brakes on it in terms of uh, of their imposition of. Uh, uh, of their own cultural patterns on on uh, on others or expecting the state to basically uh, be identifiable with the church um, yes ma'am. How do
0: you reconcile
1: well, I reconcile it as, as follows. I mean, I think that um, in terms of the Jewish tradition, there was a principle uh, evoked in the Talmud, *Kodina de Mahutadina*, which means that in, in matters of civil and criminal law, uh, basically uh, Jews renounce their claim to impose it even on their own people in that society, let alone on anybody else. Uh, so, I think that under these circumstances, this is something that has to be. Um, seen and that it clearly, if, for example, the state uh, requires, you know, that people cannot be married under a certain age, uh, we clearly cannot make exceptions for that. Now, it's interesting, Muslims don't have, uh, I mean, let's take the example of polygamy, for example. Uh, Muslims don't have that problem because uh, Islam doesn't mandate polygamy, it just permits it. And every society has notions of people actually, or, or society waiving certain rights that individuals have for the sake of the common good. Uh, Mormons had that problem because polygamy was mandated for them, and the, the, if you know the history of it, it's, uh, it was quite complicated how they kind of resolved that problem. Um, and it took a, actually literally a divine revelation as far as as, as they were concerned uh, to the head of the church, the president of the church, who's called the prophet. Um, but we have those problems. For example, in Canada, there is a movement now among some Muslims. It's interesting, it's being uh, fought vociferously by some Muslim feminists that Sharia law should pertain in domestic uh, relations um, Now, this is uh, uh, in some ways problematic, um, but I will tell you in terms of the Jewish community, for example, um, I, uh, for many years, uh, uh, served on a uh, rabbinic court that dealt with matters of marriage and divorce, and uh, we would not consider uh, celebrating a marriage unless the parties had a civil marriage license. Uh, we would not issue a religious divorce unless they'd had a civil divorce because this was part of, we consider part of our social contract uh, with the state. There are other areas, though, where it is problematic. For example, there's a movement in Canada, perhaps in the United States as well, uh, to outlaw infant circumcision. Uh, it's regarded as an assault, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and males, I mean. Um, and uh, there are certain civil libertarians and certain uh, people in the gay community who seem to be in favor of that. Now, that would be a tremendous problem. I mean, uh, Jews and Muslims as well. If that became the law in Canada, which I doubt, but things we doubted in the past have come to pass. Uh, then any Jew uh, in good faith would have to basically leave Canada. Any Canadian Jew would have to leave Canada because this is we're mandated by our tradition to circumcise our males on the eighth day. Um, so these are 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 certain problems. I will tell you also that just one other thing in terms of the Jewish community, uh, not in the United States, in certain communities. There are rabbinic courts that will deal with civil matters, but they're matters of arbitration. In other words, two Jews, or even a Jew and a non-Jew. There have been cases are willing to submit their case by agreement to a rabbinic court, which functions in civil law as a panel of arbitration. Uh, so that's, but that's clearly voluntary. And I would say, for the most part, that in these cases, that civil law uh, uh, pertains, and uh, even if it has to waive certain norms of. Religious, civil, or criminal law. But then again, there are some hard cases. Yeah?
0: One last question. Yeah.
1: Well, um, yes. <laughs> first, first of all, um, with with all due respect to uh, to President Bush, uh, I think that if he actually reconsidered, I don't think that he is a believing Christian. Uh, could or would or should categorize uh, Jesus Christ as a philosopher? Uh, uh, that would clearly be the case. But but I, I think that the there is a difference. I don't see. Uh, even though there seems to be a certain paranoia about that, uh, except for a few people, even those on the so-called religious right, who seem to invoke a prophetic mandate for themselves. What I think they do in, the, in, the, in their better moments is to say that we believe there are certain norms of God that are applied to all people. Uh, I think that what they need from people like me is to work that out philosophically. Uh, and then they say, we think we should live up to them. Uh And, but yes, I, uh, there is no, in in, in fact, it's very interesting that in the Jewish tradition, uh, it says that after the destruction of the temple prophecy, the power of prophecy was given to uh, idiots and and children, Uh, which means that in the Jewish tradition, nobody can invoke, even though some do, that do this because God has commanded me to do this specially. There has to be a reference to a source, and there has to be a rational argument based upon uh, 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 that source. And uh, I think that uh, uh, you know, to a large extent, uh, that that very much is is the case. But even within religious traditions, religious traditions are highly suspicious of people who seem to have private revelations, to which they uh, uh, say that this is, uh, uh, is is the case, and therefore it's based upon. I mean, even in, in, in the Catholic, when the Pope writes an encyclical, uh, he writes an encyclical. Yes, he speaks as the Pope ex cathedra, but he makes very interesting. Both philosophical and theological arguments, uh, which make some of his encyclicals of interest to people outside of his uh, uh, tradition. So the problem of charismatic authority uh, is a problem that every religious tradition has to uh, uh, to deal with, and uh, and do to a certain extent. But uh, I think that the notion of "quote the religious right" is as much a phantom. As the Judeo-Christian religion, there are people who hold certain views and what have you, but one could hardly indicate them as uh, ascribing to some creedal uh, unifying uh, statement uh, uh, and whatever. But I, I see it myself as 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 a religious thinker, somebody who is is a rabbi who functions in a secular university, uh, that I feel myself to have a certain obligation because of philosophical training and whatever uh, is to provide. Uh, good reasons for religious people to make claims uh, in public, which are neither the capitulation to a secular society nor the attempt to dominate it or be triumphant over it. Thank you. Thank
0: you. I'd like to welcome you not only to come back in two weeks to hear the concluding lecture and in this series on religious liberty, but also more immediately, Uh, to welcome you to a reception right outside. Thank you.